A world that loses its power will fade into nothing. If such is the fate of this world, then I shall return it to its mother's womb. The world must first die for it to be born again. This is the path to salvation, as foretold in an ancient prophecy. The world will fall for its sins, and everyone living will vanish. But I won't let you meet the same fate. I want to help you hold on to your life. To do so, I need to know your name. Will you tell me who you are? <clears throat> That's right. As of now, your will to live shall sustain you. Believe in it, and survive. I'm glad you understand. The time is near. Everything that is, will be rewritten. I am the nurturer of the next world. The template for our future rests within my hands. Now, I want you to say my name aloud. That's right. No. I won't shed another tear. Not even at this world's end. Instead, I can invite you to the world that is to come. Now go ahead. Wake up. The time is here. I'm so popular. Today is the end of my third season of this audio experiment. Throughout the run of this season, I have been comparing high and low art and fusing it in a satanic ritual to try and create a reason to make the new world. Today, we are going to do just that. I'm joined by a good friend and off-returning guest, to mm -hmm. talk about one of the most important philosophical uh, pieces of art that has impacted my worldview since I first experienced it in middle school. Um, it has been such a domineering influence on my life that I have ended up thinking by its terms and creating this season of the podcast in its image. We're talking about Shin Megami Tensei 3 Nocturne, developed by Atlas and released in 2003 originally, as well as the third season of my show. And of course, I'm joined by my friend, as mentioned. Who are you? I'm Sam. It's so good to be back. Uh... Welcome back, Sam. Since um, since this season has kind of run its course, you've started your own podcast as well. <laughs> I threw my hat in the ring. 
You did. And you are the host of The Third Place, which is a fascinating and completely individual exploration of video games. No one talks about games in the way that you do. And uh, we've talked about a lot of video games together um, up until this point. Shinigami Tensei Five in the very beginning of the season. Uh, We've Mm -hmm. talked about the Resident Evil games. And uh, this is really the most important, um, like, interactive art piece I've ever experienced and I couldn't do it without you. Well, I'm honored that you want me back. I I remember when I first discovered you and then by extension your podcasts. I remember listening to it from the start and I the original intro I was like I know what that is. Like mm-hmm. it was like this is Sh- this is like Shin Megami Tensei. I replied to you saying is this Shin Megami Tensei music and you said yes and I was like okay like I got it from there. Like, yeah, I, I knew what you were trying to do from the get go. So it feels, it feels like it's been a long time, like a big full circle moment for mm-hmm. our our little relationship. So uh, absolutely, and I mean, Shin Megami Tensei three is such an important part of this show. And if you don't know about it or haven't played it, then so much crucial context is like missing to the entire tone and purpose mm-hmm. of what I've been doing. Even since the very beginning of the show, I've been concerned with the end of the world, the end of culture, things coming to a violent conclusion, and I've been framing a lot of the show in Nocturne's terminology. Um, throughout all three seasons, I've used the theme music from the maps and the title screen, as well as the Game Over music, because the lonely, apocalyptic tone of a world in total turmoil and pillaging through it alone and with the support of those you find is what the whole game is about and I think what my my podcast has kind of attempted to do as well. Yeah, I mean SMT I mean it it very much is podcast sort of in its energy because it is one person roaming the vast wasteland of a crumbled society and uh, civilization and you are just literally talking to random characters throughout this world to populate it. And whether it be just ridiculous little slime creatures or sort of wayward souls or demons of all sorts, like SMT and I'm So Popular are like kindred spirits to me, at least. No, absolutely. It's intentional. And I feel really good um, laying this out like... Tammy in Twin Peaks of Return when she just sits down and explains exactly what has been happening the whole time. And mm-hmm. I want you to know, this has this season of the show has literally just been Nocturne. I have blown up the world in the second season, and this season has been wandering around the vortex world of the <laughs> internet and having to interact with all sorts of demons and pillage in this very lonely, strange destitute vortex of nothingness and quiet and discomfort and dread. It's mm-hmm. been honestly like a very challenging year for me. So much mm-hmm. in my life has been like ridiculous, but I just keep coming back to this vortex world of my podcast because I feel like I have to formulate this reason and give birth to a new world. Like I've, I've been mentioning and um, obviously that idea has become quite fraught and complicated as the season <laughs> has gone on. But here we are 
we are doing it today. We are, we are, you know, we're, we have to get it done. We have to put the nail in the coffin, so to say, or finally let the listeners know, because I know not many people have played Nocturne. Let's just put it that way. Like, no, it, it is a ancient sort of, uh, like terrifying little game that sat. I mean, it was like not a big game in the sense of what we understand as a big hit. And but like everyone talks about it, like it's some sort of like evil thing that will manifest itself. Uh, I mean, the box art uh, reflects that where it's just this like red uh, with the demi fiend on it. So I think it's just we got to get through this. Yeah. To introduce Nocturne, this is probably the most satanic piece of uh, popular art that's ever been released. Mm-hmm. It is kind of unbelievable and terrifying like how close to the devil this game feels in mm-hmm. everything from its theming and its gameplay from the aesthetic that swirls around it it is extraordinarily close to evil and i was first exposed to this after i got into um the shin megami tensei spin-off series persona I played mm-hmm. Nocturne for the first time when I was in late middle school, and it was a traumatizing experience, um, not mm-hmm. only for the oppressive, lonely, empty tone of wandering around this vortex world and talking to these demons, recruiting them. It is The original game has no voice acting, uh, mm-hmm. so it is even more lonely than you can imagine, and not only has that like been quite traumatizing, but the sheer difficulty of this game is yeah. uh, unlike almost anything else you will ever play in your life. Yeah, I I also had a very similar trajectory. I think I mentioned this on the season premiere, mm-hmm. where it's like I got into Persona, and I remember seeing online like the common thing you would see online in like comments or forum things it's like play a real Shin Megami Tensei game nocturne at the time and it it, like i said and you said it felt very like you were opening something that was not meant to be open by like Mm -hmm. acknowledging its existence and what's so fascinating to me is that this was the west first exposure to the mainline series like shin megami tensei nocturne was and and we didn't even get the original version. We got a re-release called the Maniacs Edition in Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, but we had never gotten a proper mainline entry in Shin Megami Tensei. We had gotten like Persona uh, beforehand. We had gotten like Shin Megami Tensei Nine, which was another spinoff. But like for this to just kind of manifest itself and appear on store shelves and to be kind of sitting in the same vein as something like Final Fantasy at the time. Like, mm-hmm. it is like the polar, complete polar opposite of that sort of experience. I mean, it's JRPG. You know, you're still fighting, like, you know, God, in a sense. But the aesthetics of Nocturne are frightening. The sort of questions you have to ask about not just what's happening inside the game, but outside of, like, the game in real-world context it it asks a lot of you to endure and suffer through to like mm-hmm. get get what you want and 
very few games have ever asked that out of its player and it is so obtuse to get into that if you know getting through it feels like a badge of honor but it's like what did i do in order to get what did i have to do to get there sort of thing yeah, the game is especially bracing because it doesn't tell you about how to like be successful at it. No. Um, a lot a lot of other JRPGs, um, even in this franchise, eventually teach you kind of the rules bit by bit. And this basically gives you nothing. Um, so it is extraordinarily difficult. Um, the combat system is turn-based, which means that you pick uh, your move one at a time, and uh, it's like a one-one kind of interaction with the enemy it goes back and forth you try to exploit their weaknesses but the game is brutal and unforgiving and any slip up in strategy or um poorly conducted experiment in how you tactically approach a battle will uh, immediately kill you send you back to the main (laughs) screen and you will lose sometimes hours of progress um it is so intensely difficult that like uh it was quite a bit of like a meme for a long time to like say you finish this game but uh, mm-hmm. like you said the fact that this was the first kind of main exposure to uh SMT in the west is really interesting and i vividly remember like i bought this from a fucking shopco like i went to a <laughs> shopco in bent oregon and looked at this big red cover with like the satanic star oh, on yeah, it and i said <laughs> Yeah, like, and it, that's, that's for me. You just fucking buy it at Shopco. It seems like a miracle that something uh, so dark and evil as this uh, could be like, fucking purchased at a Shopco. Yeah, it, it's it's kind of a way of miracle that this game even got the audience that it did. I mean, Another thing I learned, I actually did not know about this, and this is just kind of like a little side thing, is that this was actually directed by the the original version. Uh, was directed by the guy who went on to direct Persona 3, 4, and 5. So it's interesting to see kind of like you going backwards and you see kind of where he got his start. And it's amazing to see like this is what it was stewing in uh, Katsura Hashino's mind at the time. Mm-hmm. Because, like you said, it does not, there's no, like, safe little tutorial battle. Like, there's no explanation about how you navigate things. Or there's not, like, a marker telling you where to go or whatnot. It is plopping you into a situation and saying, you survive. Like, Mm -hmm. and, you know, SMT is notoriously known for its difficulty, you know, and you know there's no auto saving so there's no safety blanket in that sense so it's like you have to plan out everything you have to think carefully about what you're doing down to the battles where it's like whatever you can do the enemy can do and the enemy will sometimes be kind of broken and purposely beat the shit out of you because it just reflects the world that you're in this vortex world mm-hmm. full of demons who literally just want to kill you because absolutely it, it's so it's so cruel like i can't imagine anybody today going back to it and just thinking like oh wow i'm gonna have a great time with this it's gonna be yeah. so much. It's, it's like no you're not 
now that I kind of have, like, the mastery over, like, SMT games, like, I do feel confident I could play this on hard. I, I did play, like, the first, like, 10 hours or so um, last year when I was uh, going back through it, but it is very compelling to think about the mind state of the director going into this and the general um, malaise that encouraged Atlas to produce this game. Um, the overall kind of aesthetic styling of it was uh, decided because one of the um, designers of the demons and the characters here uh, you have to remind me of his name it is, is it the artist yes uh kazuma kaneko yeah kaneko so ah. kaneko yeah kaneko is uh, a fabulous artist and really talented and he said that going from the 90s to the 2000s uh, when he was walking around shinjuku where i live now he discovered that people had begun changing their fashion and had gone from kind of like the amuro namie like very like garish revealing brightly colored um fashion that was popular in that decade into a return to like characterless suits and uh featureless uncolored clothing and he felt that the world was going through a transformation and wanted to literalize those feelings in the experience of the game and you can feel a lot of japanese paranoia in the <clears throat> way that this uh, game unfolds the um uh, shin rikyo was a uh, religious cult that uh, performed the sarin gas attacks and uh, you can feel like the um like apocalyptic like mass death uh fear in mm -hmm. basically every element of this game and it's mm -hmm. so exciting and kind of overwhelming to see a medium like a video game um put all of that so articulately into words mm -hmm. yeah the, one thing about atlas that's always been fascinating with most of their games, Persona does it and SMT does it, is it, they kind of reflect the state of the times, not not so overtly, like mm -hmm. directly reference, not directly referencing like events happening at a certain time of date. I mean, Atlas, I think in almost every one of their games, like explicitly says before you start it, the characters that you see on screen and the events are purely fictional. If by chance that they look like people you know in real life, they're mm -hmm. not. Um, so like Atlas kind of Atlas developers are very keen about what is going around them and being on the place, you know, this game came out originally in the PlayStation two and the PlayStation two was like when games were really embracing the mature rating, mm -hmm. uh, they, they kind of, you know, they have been, they basically had been build, building up to this era from like 2000 to 2007 ish basically where now there was like carte blanche that we could you know they could do like games with just full-on satanic imagery you know it had been literally 10 years since like doom had came out and that that caused a stir in the in the culture at least in the west with all its sort of satanic imagery but now it's like mm -hmm we have a video game where you play out the end of the world and demons are running and, you know, destroy, you know, destroying civilization, murdering uh, humans and other monsters, you know, ripping the skin off their bodies and ripping their faces off to wear on the, on themselves. 
you know, it, Nocturne was like, it's kind of like that catalyst where things were just came together to create something so shocking and so abrasive and so just like, I guess you could just say harsh. Yeah. Uh, well, I think you're you're really on to something because like the like evocation of satanic imagery in like stuff like a Lil Nas X video or I don't know, like Sam Smith, you know, why that feels so superficial and kind of like blasé to me and this doesn't is because this is so responsible and thorough in how it chooses to use this imagery and like the Gnostic demons and um, like sort of like antichrist like characters that come up it it Mm -hmm. feels to me that it really makes you take responsibility for what it means and it evokes it in a way that you have to reflect on the meaning of it it's not just tritely for shock value it's because you have to feel as if you are voyaging into hell as you play this game Mm -hmm. and i think it's so interesting that they were able to pull it off and it never comes across as schlocky or funny Mm -hmm. or campy or cute or superficial or shallow it is from the beginning of the game to the end deeply unsettling and frightening yeah Yeah, you're right it's modern day any modern day usage of these sort of images just purely is because they know it'll get people's panties in a twist and it's just purely for that there's no mm-hmm. rhyme or reason it's just like this this sort of you know seeing an upside down cross makes people mad like that's and i love what... provocation obviously yeah, but of course the, the funny thing is that the provocation that we have now is just is um this unfortunate feedback loop where you piss off like conservatards, you make them angry, they get angry at you, and you continue this like Mugen loop, this unending cycle of like anger. So, real provocation when it's done like Nocturne can have the power to change your worldview and mm-hmm. give you the force of will to make your life something more glistening than it was before. So I think Nocturne is uh, through, like, this terrifying imagery and really uncomfortable uh, sort of gameplay style. It is doing, like, the opposite of that kind of nasty provocation. Mm -hmm. Well, it also, it benefits from the medium of games, too, because Mm -hmm. you have to interact with it in order to progress it. Like, with a movie or music or books or anything something like that. I mean, you have to interact with it, but it's like a game has like something unique to it because you, mm-hmm. you, the, the process of using your own inputs, like I have to do something to progress it. And I have to actively think about how my actions have consequences, not in that could be as simple as just the down, the turn-based battles, but in Nocturne, you have to sort of rack your head around, do I side with this you know, philosophical ideology where mm-hmm. it's literally about the strongest will prevail, but you know, the leader of this reason is like basically in- engaging with like more or less a version of religions like 
another version of religions like Satan image. It's mm-hmm. like, do I like me, my me, the player has to actually side with that. And yeah. game that's kind of the magic of games is like you have to be forced to do something in order to see the thing that is awaiting you and by process of doing it and you know it's that feedback loop of a game i feel like it sticks with you i mean you and i have endlessly sung the praises of last of us part two it's Mm -hmm. very in the in that same vein where it's like if Nocturne or The Last of Us Part Two were not games, I think the impact that they are trying to get out of you would not be the same. Now, granted, who knows what Last of Us Part Two TV show adaptation will be like, but right, it's not the same as like you know when you're playing as Ellie and you have to unload a shotgun into some human you know NPC character and see them beg for their life, sort of thing. Mm-hmm. It's it's I think that... about that a lot, like. <laughs> movies and music um, and a lot of art is something that you passively experience. I feel why games have so much potential is because like a novel, you have to act in order to make it happen. You have to generate it yourself. You have to press the button, you have to turn the page and you have to create the image in your mind. And I feel like there's so much potential um, when you think about, nocturne and what they were able to accomplish uh, with that medium that is still quite untapped but Mm -hmm. it really has like literary aspirations and Mm -hmm. it's i mean in a lot of ways i feel like my podcast is attempting to do the same thing and although i'm the one doing it i'm the main character i'm the one who's like driving it forward um you know I, i hope that it can in some way kind of emulate that artistic experience but to briefly introduce the plot of this game uh you play as a unnamed protagonist i think his name is like nauki uh, like officially but I, i'll just call him the protagonist matter. yeah, yeah. <laughs> basically um he is visiting his uh, teacher in the hospital uh when he, the background context of two cults um have been slaughtering each other in Yoyogi Park. Um, Tokyo has a weird, um, quiet ambiance about it. And as he goes to this hospital uh, to visit his teacher, he discovers that the world is about to end. <clears throat> and the, in conception, the conception, the Tokyo conception, the new world is about to be born. And the teacher, along with the two friends that the protagonist comes with, Chiaki and Isamu, they are all safe in the hospital. However, the conception occurs. Um, the entire world outside of Tokyo is zapped into oblivion, and uh, this small patch of Shinjuku um, and the surrounding areas are warped into an egg-like shape uh, that spirals up in unsettling directions, and you Mm -hmm. are left in an empty, disturbed world, having, uh, in the process of surviving, been fused with a demon, and now Mm -hmm. you are the Uh, Mm demi-fiend. Lucifer has given you the uh, gift... The Magatama, the gift of unknowable power, and it has permanently changed you. The protagonist in this game uh, is very off-putting and arresting when you play as him. Uh, mm-hmm. He only wears a pair of like black 
shinos. Yeah, yeah they're like, they're and that's it. That and his sneakers. Uh, he's glowing uh, with these like blue lines of power from his transformation, and a huge spike, spike. breaks out of his neck. What did you, what do you think about this design? It's so iconic. It it's so unlike any other sort of main character. Even in not even just in JRPGs, but just like any game, because like if we're speaking, I mean, heck, we can even look kind of back to the Nahubino and SMT five, where mm-hmm. that's a radical transformation, but like it still has an element of like elegance to it. With the Demi Fiend, it's very, it's like like the game itself. It's harsh. Like you are just this kind of on the surface, this kind of you know, a pale, uh, meek teenager who is just, like, forcibly transformed into this half-demon, half-human thing. You know, you have a human heart, and you have these blue glowing tattoos all over your body. You don't speak a word. It it feels so just, like, wrong. Yeah, it is wrong. It's so... It's kind of gross, to be honest, to like look at it well, I think for it's the, the entirety the neck, of the game. The next, the next spike really is the part that always unsettled me. It's just like in any medium where they have like the half demon, you know, when you get transformed into a demon, it's like it kind of like I mean, heck, with SMT, it's kind of a fair comparison because mm-hmm. Dante from Devil May Cry is in this, and yeah, <laughs> Dante in Devil May Cry is that half demon, half human person and when he ever when he does his devil transformation in those games it looks like devilish in the sort of way that we kind of understand de- like a devil type look but like nocturne when they do it it's just like the demon is trying to literally escape from the body and it's like incomplete sort mm-hmm. of it's like an incomplete thing that you're experiencing and then you have to control for 70 plus hours. Yeah. I find the nudity to be really off-putting too, because like the shorts are not stylish. It's not like, it's not cool. It feels very naked and vulnerable, despite the fact that you have this like huge spike of power trying to Mm -hmm. erupt out of your skin. And this was done intentionally because, um, Conical, the artist behind the designs of these characters, he originally imagined the character was going to be completely naked. And he imagined, like, a uh, lone, naked, like, 16-year-old boy, like, um, feverishly, like, running through a desert. Uh, And Mm -hmm. he ultimately took uh, inspiration from the Red Hot Chili Peppers, believe it or not. (laughs) That's such a a choice. But it makes total sense to me because it's like this weird Japanese interpretation of, like, the kind of animalistic, like, hooting, like, mm-hmm. butt rock of, like, the Red Hot Chili Peppers. <laughs> so it totally, like, checks out to me, and it is very, very creepy. Mm-hmm. In terms of, like, how I feel, like, I don't know. When I, like, am uh, going... Th- I'm a little bit of a monstrosity myself. Like, my drag is not, like... You know, I think I'm, you know, beautiful, cunty boots or whatever, but I also like being a little bit confrontational. I like um, having my eyebrows unblocked. I mm-hmm. like looking a little bit like a tranny two months on hormones. Like, <laughs> I like the confrontation of it, and it's so refreshing to see a character that is just abjectly and completely, like, 
uncomfortable to look at. Yeah, like if you, the Nahobino and the Demifiend are on two uh, opposite sides of the spectrum for mm-hmm. and. As much as I love Nahobino, I always think the Demifiend is a much more captivating protagonist mm-hmm. character to play as just because his design is so striking and off-putting. And to go back just a little bit, uh, just the, the whole premise of the game where the world ends in the first 15 minutes, you know, some, which is a uh, an inversion of what you do in every other game where mm-hmm. you're trying to stop the end of the world. And it's just like, nope, the conception will happen. You can't stop it. And uh, I just love how, like you said, like literally the streets of the city just, it seems like it's already happened. Like the conception already happened. I mean, part of that is because the PS2 was not exactly a powerhouse in the, like compared to modern technology, but it adds such a just already off, like the, literally when you boot the game up, it's just so off-putting. Like, yeah, and none, I, none and of this works. None of this makes sense. I love the way they imagine Tokyo before it gets wrapped up into the conception vortex world because that complete lack of people, except like one uh, man working at a train station, your mm-hmm. friends, the protruding like emptiness of the city, it makes a lot of sense because they're kind of suggesting that actually the world is already over. Everything is already done for. It's mm-hmm. desolate and upsetting and quiet in a really eerie way. And walking around that hospital in like the first 15 minutes of the game, like looking for your teacher is genuinely creepy. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's very, it's not Silent Hill in the way Silent Hill does its visuals, but it, it evokes the same kind of emotion out of you where it's just like, this is a place where pe- like nurses, doctors, patients, you know, people should be in it, but there isn't mm-hmm. like in the only people out of the side of the people that you directly know of is, you know, uh, Hikawa, the you know man who's going to bring about the end of the world. And he's like literally in the basement where there's blood everywhere you know, the, the Amala drum just kind of behind him. And he's just in a dark room. And it's just like, I, I wish that I was old enough to like have gotten this game and played it in 2003. Cause I want to know what the average person, like this, like a average person who just said like, Oh yeah, this looks interesting and bought it. Mm-hmm. Like what on earth they had had to have thought of. It's like, what is going on? This feels just like a horror game at, at times. And and then for you to literally experience the conception in that cutscene is like that's one of the most haunting cutscenes that I can think of to today. Like where oh, it yeah. just the black blobs just like shooting across parts of the city, you know, just the everything goes blue and you know your teach you know Yuko just kind of accepts her fate and the world folding. It's like so just disturbing and then. The fact that the game is like, oh yeah, you have to find your way out of the hospital to like get it going, and you yeah. have to like you get you get exposed to SMT Nocturne's uh, dungeons uh, in a baby form, but it's like okay, we we expose you to the end of the world. Now get ready for like something that's even more difficult, which is SMT dungeons. Yeah, well, it's so interesting how SMT um, kind of literalizes like that uncomfortable 
empty ambiance of like the first 15 minutes and then like it kind of like reverses it almost and when it lets you into the rest of the world and you start exploring like the dungeons um Mm -hmm. you see this vision of tokyo which is kind of like it seems to be like saying what's not being said this is what tokyo and japanese society and the world is already like now Mm -hmm. it's just being visually represented and it Mm -hmm. is really off-putting even Mm -hmm. just like the hospital in the beginning because there's a lot of familiar structures like Mm -hmm. buildings are still there there are walls and doors you have to use like key cards but Mm -hmm. there is this like intrusion of something quite difficult to explain like the uncanny supernatural demonic um like invasion of the world we know it's so original and when you like the game is really capable of going deep down into like the totally abstract like geometrical dungeons but it's so compelling to me like seeing like this like weird interaction between the two it it makes like the perfect um representation of how i feel the world is like really like if that makes sense yeah it that era of games where they had the technology to finally kind of depict close to the real thing like not fully but like oh hey the characters look like humans now the environments look like places we cut like we've seen in day-to-day life not one-to-one but close enough like Mm -hmm. but your mind can fill in the blanks just enough where it's just like you're it's like uh um because uh, to bring up the last of us like i remember how the last of us says they cut away right before the death scenes because your brain fills in the more horrifying parts mm-hmm. and nocturne is again like that where it's just like the emptiness the sort of just like yeah the the yeah the emptiness is like there for your mind to fill in like what was happening here what are these like spirits and sort of angry uh entities that are now just floating in this vortex world like what are they who were they what are they doing here what is their intent like nocturne preys upon your curious mind and Mm -hmm. the fact that like you said it kind of feels like it is manifesting real the real life uh in a visual manner i think in the modern day sense i think it becomes more and more clear what was present then and present now of just like mm-hmm. hol- hollow spaces people reduced down to sort of just like two sentences about what they are like or you know car- these like one wandering souls that are just like just saying like one sentence over and over and over again because that's all they can think about it's like people online being reduced to memes of themselves you know barfing out every like you know, little like joke about themselves or the over the the ridiculous character caricatures of themselves. Like Nocturne was the first time that I can think of off right now that was like, oh wow, this is like visualizing something that I think most people can feel. But now that we have an, a solid image, it's like I don't want to see it. I do not want to see that after a long day of work. Yeah, exactly. I mean. It really is such a singular experience. I can't 
can't think of anything that feels exactly like this. Um, but it is really interesting, too, because the music is such an important oh, part of this mu- that, oh, my God, it like, really cements that that isolated vibe and, like, the horror of mundanity. Um, because it kind of, like, references, like, this, like, 80s, like, new wave, like, synth mm-hmm. kind of sound. But it's channeled through this, like, orchestral, um, like... Rock. Yeah, exactly. So it's, like, this weird kind of guitar oriented rock but also like possessed by like the haunted ghost of the 80s and yeah. uh, it's really uncanny because sometimes the music actually it's not like depressing or dark or morbid like when you're on like the main map or anything but it feels out of place and it's really um it's kind of upsetting yeah the this is a shoji meguro uh doing the music and he's he for the longest time he was basically the main guy who would do the music for anything atlas mm-hmm. uh he, his more famous works would be the persona series but you know if you are privy to his sound or any atlas game like you can tell like oh that's him and he has a very distinct style and what he made for nocturne is just so like it it really puts you through the ringer of emotions. Like you have like something like what you've used in your own show, like the large mm-hmm. map theme, which feels so like, you know, it has like a higher energy to it, but like it has this sort of dissonance at the core of it where it's just like, uh, like I'm supposed to feel energetic, but like I shouldn't be because I'm traversing literal wastelands. Like mm-hmm. there's like a disconnect or, I feel like the one, the first time that you get like when the game is connecting with the music is with the first, like the that main battle theme. Uh, yes, I really wanted to talk about the battle theme because it has like that guitar thing going on, but it also has this screaming, distorted <laughs> uh, voice that sounds like a yelling dog. And because um, there's a lot of fighting and battling in this game, you will hear that forever and after you play this game for like 70 hours plus like you literally will never ever be able to get it out of your head and when you start getting like uh disturbed by the world or you become despondent in some way i just hear that like lucifer distorted like quote like it's so upsetting yeah it's you know because like bad jrpg battle themes usually are like kind of to get you excited like you know mm-hmm. we can probably anyone listening because most people have played one they just don't know like heck pokemon is a jrpg and pokemon has like you know you know upbeat music yeah like or final fantasy always has kind of like that grand mm-hmm. battle theme uh but like nocturne is just like here is this like ultra aggressive rock song with like the most distorted lyrics you will ever hear that like sound like at one time it's saying uh another one god rejected but at the same time it's saying war broke out in heaven mm-hmm. like you you literally can't tell what it is saying but it it's reminds like... me of like that weird satanic panic like aftershock that you know people would always like reverse Beyonce songs like looking for like devil noises and this is like what if that was actually just what was happening yeah exactly and that like he said because JRPGs are long 
they are you're doing the same thing over and over and over and over and over again so you just that song is just imprinted into the back of your mind and you will think about it and it like festers in your mind like a mm -hmm. like just and a nagging bug the other thing that's really off putting about this is that the audio is downsampled really severely yes. Yes. Um, because a lot of the music when you're just walking around the map and everything is fine um, but because of like the processing powers of the PS2 um, and mm -hmm. the like uh, technical limitations at the time a lot of the battle music is like extremely grainy and even if you listen uh even if you play the remaster that they put out on the switch they didn't the, fix it they didn't fix it but it's kind of like a fundamental part of it to me yeah. now and i wouldn't want them to you need that like grungy crunchy like terrible noise oh yeah like the ps2 era was like obviously they had like the capabilities to have like prop i mean even even in the ps1 they could have like cd audio on the game disc but they you couldn't have a lot of it like you had mm -hmm. like for example in the case of something like final fantasy 7 to save space they just used the sound chip to make the sound if you know if because cd quality audio takes up space and when you're working with limited space you have to cut cut, cut corners somewhere and on the ps2 some developers would try to like have that MIDI that is a MIDI sound where it's like it sounds like an orchestra, but it's not quite like mm -hmm. it's a, it's it's a computer sound. Yeah. But like Nocturne's solution was how about we crunch the bit right down? And in nine out of ten cases, I'd be like, What are you doing? Like, this doesn't sound good. I mean, Nocturne even bit crunches like sound effects and all this stuff. Like, it's not just the music, like even the menu uh, interaction. Oh, yeah. Stuff. Like the like the battle result theme is like, so it's so crunchy. Yeah, uh, it's really wild to actually experience this through like the gameplay and getting like used to it over time. It's like every part of this game is sharp and like meant to cut you and it feels like you're holding like a like a big sphere of broken glass it is um dark and weird and uncomfortable like hearing all of those like down sampled effects all the time and i honestly wouldn't have it any other way i yeah. also fiercely believe that you should not play this game with voice acting on you no. have to read everything in silent destitution yes i mean that was, I believe, an intent originally that they did not want voice acting. I could, I ho I'm pretty sure that's correct that they did not want voice acting in this original version, of in the PS2 version. They added mm -hmm. it in the HD version, which is fine, whatever. But you know, the edge and harshness of this game, down from aesthetics to gameplay to story, all parts of it. I think as like you said you get used to it. I think that is on purpose to get used mm -hmm. to it because you slowly it's that sort of thing where you bond you connect with your character where games are always so reliant on you being ha having a connection between you and the player character. Like yeah. Getting from something as simple as like naming Link Link because he is a link between you and the game. Like it's Something like that, where it's very on the nose and very obvious what they're trying to do. But it's like Nocturne's interpretation of this concept is like, it's like the trial by fire. You get used to this 
and or else you won't. And if you don't, you won't get it. Like you, you yeah, have to swallowed up. Yeah, have to be. You have to sit through this game, or you have to play through this game for hours until it just you don't register it. You don't get because you become now one with the demi fiend who gets used to the vortex world. He gets used to all the demons that he gets into his party, and the, all the demons that he interacts with, both large and small. Like all that abrasive harshness fades away as you grow stronger and stronger. Your bond to the demi fiend. And as a result, your connection to the world at large. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, it's such a small thing that on the surface, people would ridicule and criticize. It's like, why, why didn't you uncompress the audio files in the HD verse? And it's like, I'm pretty sure Atlas understood that that was a per probably. Well, it's part of the experience now for mm -hmm. sure. And it's not the same without it, you know, regardless of intent. Um, yes. And it is important to mention that half of the combat of this game is talking to and convincing demons to join de your party de demon, demon negotiation. negotiation yeah which is literally what i do on the internet every day is just mm -hmm. demon negotiation you just talk to more people in the vortex world who are weird creepy creatures and constantly repeating the same things as little meme robots and or by being uh by giving them what they want you can bring them onto your team or they'll lash out and attack you this is so real yeah it's, <laughs> it's so real demon negotiation is like the best like combat feature in any game of all time yes i i 100 agree because the demon it's not even nocturne because it's an older game so it's not going to spell things out it's never clear exactly what the demons want to like no they never could, they could be harsh and angry they could be trying to flirt with you and want you to like more or less want to bang them like yeah you have some that are just happy and cheerful but even then that does not help you with the inter interactions like sometimes like they'll turn on you because like you said the wrong thing to them or mm -hmm. like they'll keep asking money out of you like oh hey i want 500 i forget the currency in the game uh maca i think it's the currency mm -hmm. like i want 500 maca Oh wait, now I want ten thousand. It's like yeah, what? what? And you can say no, but sometimes they'll just fucking attack you anyway. Well, yeah, like you could say no, and they'll be like, "I like the cut of your jib. I'm going to join you." It's like yeah, no, it's... <laughs> no sense, no sense. But it's... that's how things are. It's perfect. I love it. Um, it it feels satisfying and earned. Um, and it's interesting because you know we've kind of set like the general tone and like described what this like dilapidated tokyo looks like as the vortex world but it gets even more interesting because although this is the end of the world it is the conception and so this the world must be destroyed so it can be born anew and mm -hmm. so you being the protagonist and kind of being like this blank um slate i think satan or the great will i don't remember which it is uh, but they they say to you during your transformation and a uh, birth into the this new world that you do not have a reason. So go out into the world and find one. And that's really your only directive. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. throughout the rest of the game, you encounter characters who have these reasons.
reason in this game, spelled with a capital R, is the fundamental will to reform the world in one's vision. And as you encounter the people who have survived through the conception, as well as some of the occupants of this demon vortex world of post-apocalyptic Tokyo, you encounter um, many people who start forming uh, these reasons. And uh, the first one, let's talk about is Chiaki's. Oh yeah, the special diva. The special diva. Chiaki is a spoiled, um, kind of full of herself, uh, rich teenage girl. Uh, she's very stylish and very uh, compelling. She, I don't know what it, She's gorgeous. I'm obsessed with her. Yeah, she... Uh, yeah, Kazuma Kaneko's uh, artwork... Uh, she's my favorite design like just her normal everyday look is like gorgeous like this is the thing about him is that he makes some absolutely beautiful like character designs um and she is definitely one of them uh she she's the most fascinating of the reasons to me like not not purely because of what she's preaching but, but merely where she's coming from to get to the reason like mm-hmm. you know she because more or less she she and also uh isamu for most of the game they're kind of reliant on you on saving them or they fail at doing something to which helps them forge their own ideas like and chiaki's reason is basically like you know th- the strongest will survive the i guess social darwinism darwinism to a broader sense yeah her philosophy is that in the world she imagines um the weak will be in a uh like a state of permanent slavery and only the strong will compel society forward and she feels entitled to this worldview for uh being one of the few that fate allowed to survive the conception and the way she um, delivers this speech is really beautiful. It's in this um, big, bright white room. It's a, a, a classroom with red desks and the silhouettes of uh, people in red slumped over um, desks. And mm-hmm. they gradually disappear as she reveals more of her philosophy. And this is an interesting reason with a capital R because, you know, I have, of course, kind of contemplated this idea myself that only those who are strong enough to make the world happen for them deserve to do anything with it in the first place. Um, But what's kind of your understanding of this reason? How do you feel about it? I, here's, what's interesting to me about all the, mostly with Isamu and Chiaki is that like, their reasons come from like, when I, was playing it they both come from like just very spoiled co- points of view like chiaki's worldview kind of she needs power from someone else to get her where she needs to go she has to she has to you know gozu tenno the demon sponsor that she sides with who also agrees with her on this thing it's she's always it's interesting of like with her reason is like in her world what is the strongest who is the strongest 
And if she didn't have her demon sponsor, if the Demi Fiend wasn't there to save her, she would have been one of the people who would have been killed, more than likely. Mm -hmm. Like, she's almost like the benefactor of circumstance, which I feel like almost negates her reason to an extent. Because she easily could have just been murdered right there and then from the start. Like... She, you know, you first see her, like, reach that bar in Shinjuku, and it's like, she could have been easily killed just wandering the wasteland by herself, and she, I, like, she always just strikes me as, like, she functions off just, like, she gets what she wants, and she wants, you know, to be at the top, but, like, who's to say one other demon could surpass her, which, in a sense is the Demi-Fiend. The Demi-Fiend surpasses mm -hmm. her in power, and it reflects how her ending plan pans out, where she more or less just fades into nothingness. Yeah. And, like, she accepts that there is one person better than her, and she's, like, she literally just disintegrates. Because I thought about this a lot, um, especially talking about things like Mein Kampf this season, which is very similar, honestly, to um, mm -hmm. like Chiaki's reason, which is that only the strong and blessed by God deserve to um, prevail over the world. And, of course, there's, like, an attractive element to, like, making a, a futurist uh, society where things are constantly moving forward and the weak are abandoned. Um, mm -hmm. But there's something about that thinking that fails because true power does not exist um all strength is flawed and faulty mm -hmm. and no matter who you uh, kind of imagine yourself to be there's always like something that you won't be perfect in and mm -hmm. the further you lean into this philosophy it kind of leads to this um like neurotic power trip and uh if you let yourself uh, become so obsessed with this, like, the strong shall prevail thinking, uh, you'll end up, like, sacrificing a lot of your own humanity and kind of succumbing into nothingness like Chiaki does. Oh, yeah, she... I mean, granted, her and Isamu have their sort of pseudo-fiend transformations before, mm -hmm. they, before they become their demon avatar to sort of uh prepare to fight the kagatsuchi uh, but she gets that one transformation beforehand where she gets that like tree bark-esque demon mm -hmm. arm and she gets like the white spiky hair and like it's interesting to see how see her story play out because it's just like she believes herself to be the strongest and therefore the bet should reap the sort of benefits of that. But like when you are present in this conception world, this vortex world, who's to say there isn't another demon that will destroy you. And also the concept of the strongest will prevail. That's like a vague topic because like maybe someone's stronger than you intellectually or stronger than, stronger than you in who knows whatever fields like, who will be who is the like you said there who has true power in this this vision of the world yeah and it's and, kind of like a, a randian like philosophy as well and sort of in in tune with um her worldview 
Um, but the thing for me is that I feel like a lot of Ayn Rand's writing is about like um, putting those up who you do believe to be not necessarily stronger than you, but visionaries and uh, mm-hmm. people with, with you know power. And you know it 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 doesn't necessarily have to be you, but it's kind of like promoting or encouraging those people, and and um, instead of uh, letting them get sucked into the endless like pithy, I'm, I'm better chatter. than you. Yeah, yeah. It, which fits her character being sort of this bratty high school kid who gets everything mm-hmm. who what she wanted and all that stuff. It's her point of view comes from a very warped perception of, well, you know, the rich you know, the people who are successful in life, they're just better than everyone else because, you know, they're quote unquote stronger, but her ideas, I think don't, they very much like what you were talking about when you did with, uh, talked with Jack. It's like when you see like Hitler's sort of rants and ramblings about, Oh, the perfect sort of, you know, the strongest society, the Aryan society, Mm-hmm. But like you divulge into his like weird like you know catty girly like obsessions over nothing and you just spiral into this like bizarro like infinite feet like Ouroboros snake feedback loop where it's just like like you're you're never gonna get anywhere or something if you look at Rand it's like promoting those who will better society forward, not because they are like strong demons of the vortex world. It's more like the strong will, the, the will, the determination, the vision is actually what gets you far. Not because you are the smartest or the strongest or the brightest soul in the Mm -hmm. universe. Well, it definitely contrasts like Isamu's reason, which we can talk about, which is, I think, the worst one by I hate far. Him. He's such a coward. <laughs> He's awful. His philosophy is that um, he wants to create a world where uh, one can be completely independent and not rely on any other people. And basically, it is to lock your. Uh, every uh, individual gets their own world where they have all of their needs met permanently. This yeah. is horrifying. Yeah, his. He is the biggest fucking coward. Like, I think in any SMT game I've ever played, like, because mm-hmm. and the game kind of hints at it pre preconception, where it's just like even Chiaki like calls him out on his false bravado, mm-hmm. and Isamu constantly has to be saved. He constantly is like a you know a pussy, and he can't do anything for himself. So his solution to the world is, well, if we had our own individual worlds, we wouldn't have any conflict. Like, it's it's the the epitome. It's just like the the sniveling person who retreats into their own little pocket dimensions online. Mm-hmm. They get their own like yes men telling them, oh, you're so great, you're so wonderful. Everything you preach to the internet is so true, and it's just like it creates just these heinous little creatures. And I think what's so fitting for both his pseudo fiend transformation. And then when he takes on his demon sponsor, Noah, 
Mm-hmm. Like his his pseudo transformation, he has all those like souls basically morphed onto his body, like agonizing in pain on him, and he just looks like he is blank in the soul, blank in the face. He just does not care, like at, like devoid of emotion and in any all like semblance of humanity. And then when he becomes the like demon avatar thing, he just reverts into like a fetus position. Mm-hmm. It, it, it goes into this the Noah and just like becomes just like a little ball and he's like just tiny and it's just like my god like if their goal was to I know that SMT wants to present each reason for the most part like they each have their own potential but mm-hmm. man the reason of Musabi uh, Musubi uh, Isamu's reason it's just like the most pathetic one out of the bunch. And... No, it's just horrible. And it's honestly, this is the one that like resonates the most with what has been happening for the last several years and why I felt myself that the world needed to be exploded so that it could be recreated because <clears throat> basically everyone in the world is uh, currently trying to retreat into this Isamu reason. Uh, COVID was obviously a big progenitor of this, where people were forced to lock themselves away from society. Um, enormous erections of plastic were put between people. Uh, you had to socially distance and cover your face and were forced uh, as deeply as possible into your own pocket dimension, into your own world where you were completely self-sufficient and your only human contact came through something like a food delivery or an Amazon package. And mm-hmm. it, people carry this fucking philosophy even worse now than they did before. Now people are, are so ghettoized into their own worldviews and a fear of the exterior that no one is alive. No one <clears throat> will have sex or party or do anything dangerous. Everyone just retreats into these terrifying little white orbs that uh, they can be nestled in as a fetus for all of time until they die. Yeah. I mean, as we were saying earlier, Nocturne visualizes society and it's terrifying to see. I think we properly got to experience our own Isamu reason and it's only just kind of exacerbated in the post-COVID time that we are in now, I guess. Yeah, now there's a COVID of the soul. Yeah. And it's so bad. Uh, I really think, honestly, um, that religious fanaticism is very uh, responsible for this. And um, Isamu reminds me a lot of Dasai from uh, SMT5. Yes, Yes. I was going to say that. Yeah, he's quite similar to me. And, like, this desire to crawl back into the womb of God and then surround yourself with morality and rulemaking mm-hmm. and this pathetic attempt at philosophizing a meaning into your life so that you can be nestled in the warmth of whatever it is that you are praying to is highly disturbing and needs to be thrown away immediately. I'm not saying that people who are religious or pray or love God or anything like that are um, you know, evil, but it has become this Isamu reason where people wrap themselves in their own world and use, they create a gauze 
over themselves with infinite morality. It's yeah. really, really repulsive to me. And it, when you see this in fucking SMT Nocturne, you kind of are radicalized into understanding why Chiaki would want to blow these people up. Yeah, like, off that, it, you really do see how the reasons all have their own flaws, but you understand how they got there and why mm-hmm. they think that way. You don't have to agree with them, per se. I mean, you get the choice to pick who, you know, the lesser of e- you know, all evils or whatever. Right. But, yeah, I mean... I- I- Isamu is just every tradcath online who retreats to their fake utopias, like you were saying a few weeks ago. It's like everyone is retreating to their own little Isamu bubble utopia because they cannot just experience life for what it is. And you know, it- it's the it's the most cowardice of the endings, and I think it's also very reflective because. Nocturne, there's always a post-ending scene, and if you pick one of the three reasons, you get a scene of them kind of like in a new newborn world in the desert. Like, the Demi-Fiend's tattoos are all gone, the spike's gone, and he talks with the, the three uh, people in charge of the reasons. And I think it's very fitting that Isamu turns into a giant stone tablet. Mm-hmm. Like, he becomes literally just, like he loses all sense of humanity. Like he just becomes a guideline or just like a, just a edifice to which like, Oh, this is what he was. And he's literally, it almost looks like a tombstone. It's so creepy. Yeah. And you just hear his disembodied voice. And it's just like, in a way he's, he, he died in the process, both physically, but also just like, in his own spiritual sense. Like he is just a t- more, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure you can correct me on like what that stone tablet is meant to reflect in like Japanese culture. But to me as a Westerner, it just looks like a, his tombstone. I know it looks and, like a tombstone to me as well. And it's funny, like that image of like an enormous tablet that enshrines your soul in which you are in your infinite little bubble world for the rest of your life. I mean, you can literally see this happening physically in the real world now. I mean, I feel yeah. like the fucking internet is just this, these tablets that people are morphing into, and they're sacrificing their souls for a state of bliss and security, like little fucking babies. Yeah. It, it, oh, God. It's so, so horrible. And like I said, it really does, like, piss you off, like... When I first talked about Chiaki's reason, you're like, oh, yeah, like this is ridiculous. You know, the world can't work like this. But but you you can get it. You you understand her. Like, you can get, you understand how she gets there. But with Asamu, it's just like, you literally are rejecting humanity. You know, both it's the beauties of humanity and the harsh harsh truths Mm -hmm. of of humanity. And it's like, the, the, this is like the, it's the definition of what we are living through. And we see that on the day to day, you know, you and I see on the timeline, just con like every few months, these sort of Isamus pop up and reveal themselves for what they are. It's just cowards. Uh, it's unbearable. Uh, th- it's interesting as well um, because the mannequins exist in yes. SMT and the mannequins are these uh, strange uh, clay creatures, 
And mm-hmm. uh, they are basically like impressions of humans. They look like people, kind of, but they're twitchy. Um, yes. They like they can't stand still. They're pathetic. They're whiny. They run around. They're scared. They're frightened. And it turns out that the mannequins are basically the lingering emotions made physical of human beings in this world. And the kind of sniveling um, and very pathetic portrayal of them in the game... It, once again, you can really understand Isamu's like reason because uh, these people are are so um, like people in quotes like these mannequins as they're called are are so like disturbed and frightened by the world that you understand why Isamu would want to create a world where they have infinite support individually. Yeah, like the mannequins are such a great like little reflection. They 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 really are kind of a way for you to un. They're like the the foundation for all these reasons for their existence and mm. how the three reason leaders kind of get to where they go to. You can see it through the mannequins. I mean, even the mannequins try themselves to form a reason with their leader, uh, Futomimi. But because of the rules of the, of the conception, the mannequins can't even make their own reason because they're not human. Yeah. And it... Yeah, it, the mannequins are, I think, a very underappreciated aspect of Nocturne. You no know, because... one ever talks about them, but they're, like, literally so, like, they're NPCs, um, both yeah. figuratively and literally. And when you encounter people who have no willpower or, like, lust individuality. for Individuality. Their yeah, individuality, like, yeah, absolutely. They feel and look like mannequins, and I can't get over that like twitching animation that they have and like yeah. the weird like slurping that they do. It feels that's how it feels like when you actually interact with people who just have no fucking drive to be alive at all, but no like courage to kill themselves either. It's just like twitching white clay people like spasming in front of you forever. Yeah, and it does, and it also helps the Kaneko's style. He has a very the way he draws eyes, mm-hmm. like they, they they look very blank, and the mannequins look extra blank in the eyes, like cattle eyes, and it's just oh. like you you re- you realize that like again when you like look at the grander populace, it's just like you see a mannequin everywhere, like people who are just kind of like blankly navigating the world, not not really defining themselves or what they stand for. And yeah, I mean, try, I mean, and there's also interesting mannequins like uh, Sakahagi, the renegade who skins his own kind. He skins other mannequins to assimilate their power. Mm-hmm. Like, and even then, like, he is no match for stronger people in the world. Like, yeah. the, mannequin, the mannequins are useless in the grand scheme of things. Again, they can't have a reason. And no matter what, they are cattle father to the strong stronger entities of the world you see it you know again you see how chiaki gets to her reason because of these worthless little creatures you see how osamu gets to it because he sees all of them struggling and and dying and being slaves so he wants them to all be you know protected in their own little bubble but then you know you have someone like i guess you know the thir- the the third reason you know yeah, hikawa he mm-hmm. he's i would say he's I guess now seeing Evangelion, like, you know, I think you and I have, like, touched upon the LCL soup 
before the in our group, previous yes yeah like i will say like, i don't it's interesting because he's the arbiter of the conception he and he's the most assured in his reason too like he has his reason pretty much prior to the conception he just needed the power to do it like he's very unique for mm-hmm. for this type for this type of end game he wants it's a he's a unique character to give that to i think mm. absolutely um, and it is he's also the character that's kind of responsible for ending the world um he's like the one who learns how to use like the amala drums and um reinvoke the conception uh which has been happening and in, in these cycles infinitely the world starting over and uh, being remade and then going back and forth for infinity which is much like my podcast too um <laughs> and yeah i think you know we have kind of already understood that like a world of complete conformity and stillness is uh no good and won't do anyone any mm-hmm. power it, it's creating like this evolutionary state where we can all completely perfectly coexist is no life at all um I don't have like too much commentary on it because it seems simple. I feel like I've been since yeah. Evangelion has been like the other like leading influence on the show. It's like if you don't get that at this point, you're like not listening to me on my show. Yeah, I mean, his philosophy is a philosophy of stagnation, where it's like mm-hmm. it's the it's the it's the idealist saying like, well, what if we remove every sin of the world? You know, no racism, no. You know, every, you know, there's no poor people, no hunger. You know, it's the ideal society where we all can, you know, be together and do all that. But like, living life brings hardships and trials to it that are meant to mm-hmm. harden you and strengthen you as a person. And you know, like you said not really much to harp on because you have harp, you know, you've talked about this concept Mm -hmm. over and over and over again. And if you don't get it, you know, too bad. Um, But I always found him interesting just because of the fact that he was so set on his ideals from the get go and being the arbiter has always been kind of an interesting take on this concept, but there really isn't much to say. It's just like, he wants he, mm-hmm. he he's kind of Isamu adjacent where mm. it's like instead of being individual bubbles it's one collective bubble yeah and there's one reason that does not come to fruition which is from your teacher um, Takao Yuko and she wants a world where everyone has um, freedom. complete freedom um, however they're also like supported um, by other people and uh, life is valuable, but above all is freedom. However, she does not ultimately possess the ultimate strength in her inner philosophy to make this reason happen, which is unfortunate because out of all of them, that one makes the most sense. Yeah, and what's and Nocturne kind of plays on your expectation because it sets her up to be like the one, like the quote-unquote good route. Mm-hmm. Like, She's the one who sets things up. She tells you right before the conception, you have to find me. And, you know, her presence, her design, all invoke that she is, like, meant to save the world, so to say. Or Mm -hmm. rebirth the world in a true, ideal way. But, the you know, with the Kagatsuchi, 
<laughs> is like cruel in its judgment saying you, if you're not human you can't do it and if your reason is not strong enough you can't do it mm -hmm. and her broad sense of freedom is not strong enough in order to get it and it's reflected in the fact that her sponsored god is a false god aradia mm -hmm. which kind of ties into the broader lore of nocturne where it's like aradia comes from a universe that failed the conception Mm -hmm. where they could not rebirth the world because there was no strong enough reason to present to God. And Aradia kind of floats between universes trying to more or less try to get their own world to restart in a sense. Mm -hmm. But like, yeah, I, isn't that I, disturbing? Yes, it is very disturbing. It's like, and, and she, and she gets possessed by this demon too, mm -hmm. where it just has that like, blue and purple like Rorschach like drawing on her face and she starts twitching like a mannequin when Aradia takes over mm -hmm. it's so creepy and it's just like in a way I feel bad for you know Yuko because it's like her ideals on a on paper is like yes I would like a world of freedom but like the forces that be are like too vague next like it, it, it's so cruel in a sense that like this woman who wants to do right of the world is like she is denied that opportunity when it's also just the idea of um no one having a reason strong enough that resonates for real there is so little individuality and opinion or forceful thought about anything. Um, if you're not subscribing to groupthink in basically any social circle you're in, whether it be like with obnoxious libtards at work who make want to make you follow whatever rule exists, or mm -hmm. if it is in like based conservative circles where you have to get all of the rules right about who is acceptable and who is not, it's just this terrible like muck and mm -hmm. you can kind of get the feeling that if we went through conception and we were stuck with the people around us like i really feel like there would be a scarce amount of people who would have a strong enough opinion about how the world should work and their mm -hmm. own ethos that they could actually present a reason to god wait and what's the equally to build off that point, like the conception happens, like the rest of the world is annihilated, but like the vortex world forms around one sort of place. Mm -hmm. So to say like, there's few enough people in the world who would have a strong enough reason, but then you concentrate it into like a little part of the world. And it's like, there better be someone in this like little quadrant of the city that better have a strong enough reason. I can tell you if New York went through the conception right now, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> Goodbye. Oh, Goodbye. God. Who knows? Maybe some of them do have a strong enough reason, and what kind of monstrosity would they make? I don't want to fucking know. Yeah, I mean, what are they going to do? Repeat reason? I don't think. Yeah, repeat reason. It's a world of carrots and shit. Yeah, like, what are we going to do? Everyone is a carrot. Oz that's what's it. That, what's that drug Lady Gaga's on? Ozempkin? Whatever that's called? It's like, oh, that's No idea. Whatever that's called. Like, the one that, like, yeah, every, you know, person in new york's using like that's a reason around or something i don't fucking yeah, know don't everyone's know. gonna everyone's gonna turn into a chemical substance they're gonna there turn go. into mannequins you're gonna they're literally gonna be they're already mannequins honestly yeah. <laughs> uh, so but, 
yeah. The, the, basically, the it works out that you also have two other options. And the option is to join Lucifer, who's been uh, joining you um, throughout the game as both in the form of a little boy and an old man. And he has been slowly, excuse me, he's been slowly kind of watching the development of your power and encouraging you to gather these menorahs um, so that he can have Mm -hmm. uh, his proper power back. And if you follow Lucifer um, and actually come to fight him, uh, you can join him in attempting to wage war on God himself. Yes, which most people would say is the, like, canon Yeah, they call it the true demon ending. Which, that one's always, I mean, it's definitely the one with the most substance. Like It's the most cinematic, and it is what the game wants you to do. And I do appreciate the kind of evil vibe about it because oh yeah like the image of like you the demi fiend and the army of demons with their all red glowing eyes just mm-hmm. marching to the camera like that is off-putting it like, is and it's such a weird sour note to like end the game on officially because it does kind of suggest like triumph and even though it's eerie like it is supposed to be like an empowered moment but mm-hmm. you have just like broken the entire universe and now you're going to kill god and completely rearrange like the physics of how reality could even happen in the I, first place it's menacing and kind of horrifying I, yeah and another part about that ending is that in order to get it you sacrifice and the last bit of humanity that is inside of you like mm-hmm. and yeah, it, it i understand why most the general S&T fan base has adopted that as like the true ending just because all all the sort of like l- details to the the background details to the story and backgrounds to certain characters are explained in that ending mm-hmm. i i get that but like it has arguably as much or if not maybe even more unsettling energy than the other reason endings Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the, the only reason ending that I feel like has any semblance of potential, like, hope for humanity is the freedom ending, where you more or less, even though Yuko has been sacrificed, you kind of side with her ideals and Aradia, and the world is reset to what it was prior to the conception, mm-hmm. but... but Lucifer says that you've been branded an enemy of God and that you have to get ready for another conception type event. And that's like the only ending that has like some moniker of hope. In and the, it's funny the... too, because they don't portray it as hopeful at all. They no. like pretty like clearly depict it as the wrong ending. And yeah. it's deeply anticlimactic when you get there and everyone is just like lifelessly standing in Tokyo again. It mm-hmm. feels like, uh, you've just woken up from like a five day bender and everyone is just like silently staring at each other. It's so, I mean, th- th- it's the only ending with any hope unless you want to go like kill God, but it's like, it feels very downtrodden. Yeah. And then the, the, the last ending, the sixth ending is literally just the world ends. Like you have no reason that you sponsor and you know, you basically the world has officially ended and your universe is going to die 
Like you just stand upon the the wasteland that you have created, and now you're a part of now. Like all all six of the endings do not have like because like with SMT five, like the true ending at least gave you a sense of like, okay, like you were the futurist sort of vehicle that mm-hmm. you your you yourself can do change in the world sort mm-hmm. of thing, but like. Nocturne is like every ending has its pros and its cons. And it's really about like which of the lesser evils do will I accept in the process mm-hmm. to get what I feel like is the best end result. Yeah. And mm-hmm, you go, sorry. It, yeah, I know, no, I just it's a really pessimistic and I wouldn't say nihilist, but it is downtrodden um, because especially after you spend, you know, 70 plus hours of this game training your demons, going through the absurd dungeons that we kind of touched on. But I mean, it can't be understated. Um, some of them have like nightmarish platforming in them. It is yeah. like it's really, really Puzzle arduous. Solving, uh, my my least my hated dungeon outside of the Amala network is the prison. The pr- oh, I hate- God. The prison is the worst because you have to invert the world and you're going through the level upside down. It's horrible. It really can't be understated how much strife you have to go through, how like dark and isolating it is to spend um, almost 100 hours of your life in nothing but the silence and the sounds of this wild, haunted 80s guitar soundtrack and... <laughs> interacting with no one, basically talking to no one, very little plot or cutscene happening. It's just you and your own force of will to get to the end of the game. And then that's what you get. Yeah. It's, it's so just like, not like but that's like the beauty of SMT is Mm -hmm. that like you are never given a like clear cut. Here's, it's not like persona where it's like persona has a good ending and a bad ending. Like Mm -hmm. it's never as obvious to what is the right path. It's every path is the right one, depending on how you feel in the moment. Yeah. And and it asks you to think and come up with the answer yourself. Like you have to choose. And it's funny because you, if you ever like look up stuff about, SMT Nocturne and like read people commenting about it on like forums or Reddit or whatever. People are always asking, "What ending should I do?" Yeah, you. It's not like that. You choose the ending that you feel is right. You have to have the power to interrogate interrogate yourself enough to find out. Yeah, it, it's it's literally that is the whole point of the game. It's not about what ending should I get. It's what ending, what ending do I worked what ending do i discover fits for me like Mm -hmm. and you know it's a video game you have the option to go back and see how you how you change (laughs) and all that stuff like obviously (laughs) but like in that moment of the first playthrough it's just like it's really and that's always the beauty of a first playthrough it's like you're going in fresh you don't know what's going on you don't know what these characters are thinking or what they intend to do and Nocturne is always kind of silently tracking how you respond to questions. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, the real power of Nocturne is sort of that journey to get to the ending. It's not so much about like, okay, what 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 
tasks do I need to do? What menorah fights do I have to do to, you know, get my ending of choice? Um, it's about piecing your own story throughout it. It's about, you know, it, it makes you almost wish that there was like a seventh ending where like somehow the Demi Fiend could create his own ending. Mm -hmm. That kind of fits more in line with like kind of fits in line with your journey of going through this world and like uh, understanding how it works, understanding how people work, how, you know, all the sort of big topics that the game kind of asks of you. Yeah. And it, it kind of makes you wish that there was like an ending that kind of like was like, oh, here's the Demi Fiend ending or whatever. Like, <laughs> but that's like, but I think they were right for not doing that like yeah it nocturne is about enduring and surviving mm -hmm. like and going through this demon world that is an analogy for our own world these bizarro demons that occupy the world that are like you know doing the most inane thing you can think of or talking like frat bros sometimes like it's about you trying to like understand so, like the world at large like what what is you know society has broken down so much mm -hmm. that it's like these imperfect solutions these imperfect reasons are the only best bet for us yeah i mean nocturne is so you know transient um in the way that it moves from the world as we know it now to an imagined future and it's so lucid and clear about the fact that society and civilization and culture as we know it is in such a cragged nightmarish state that these reasons are basically all we have left and um my journey on this show and going through all of this and talking to people has been in pursuit of the exact same thing what um 45 episodes in a whole year of my life has been leading to we are doing this we are creating the new world now um basically this show in its entirety has been my sort of apocalyptic flailing attempts to think about the things that i love and talk to um as many people as possible because i'm so popular to find a reason for how we can continue existence in a meaningful way. Um, you know, I'm only 26 going on 27. I don't know all that much about the world. My own personal 
um, viewpoint is, you know, quite minimal. I'm not the most articulate person, but it's been very meaningful to me over the last, you know, almost three years I've been doing this show now to talk about these things and introduce my friends and listeners to what I love and care about and spark some kind of passion in it, but it all has been in search of a reason. And I want to think about the third season of my show where I have been explicitly talking about uh, this, all of this stuff um, in order to find said reason. I've asked people at the end of every episode, what are we going to bring into the new world? There's been um, probably a hundred or so hours of uh, content trying to figure out what we're going to take from the past, from the low and the high art, and what we're going to do with it. And it's a question that can't just be asked like that. So we have to think about the whole project and kind of imagine what we're going to do with all of this. Um, Mm -hmm. I guess the first question I can ask you, um, you being the first person I resurrected out of the gloop and... uh, (laughs) standing next to me and through all the tumultuous internet drama and um, the actual, like, real drama that's happened to me. Um, mm-hmm. I want to ask you, what what do you get out of I'm So Popular? What is it for? I think what I take away the most hearing you every week um, is it, it like, to for one go out there like i've always viewed i'm so popular because you know i've i've listened to all three seasons and it's i always get the feeling of it's like what we were saying earlier it's like the anti-isamu belief is that to get out there in the world and to experience the world and it's experiencing every facet of what is out there and i think season three at least one of the takeaways that i immediately got on was going out to the world means processing things that are both as you've put it it's like high and low you know big and large artistic and commercial like there's this sort of balance in between it all and for us as humans it's about just putting ourselves out there in, in the first place to experience things that maybe some are something we would never discover, something that we would find abrasive, something would be, you know, terrifying, humorous, what, whatever it might be. I think what it is that season three is represented is sort of like getting out of our own sort of safety and mm-hmm. venturing forth and, putting ourselves into you know into life itself life is dangerous life is full of unknowns that we don't know we don't know what will happen to us tomorrow we don't know what will happen just to a week a month a year from now but if we don't put ourselves out there in the first place then what are we doing in the first place that's that's what i've gotten first and foremost with mm-hmm. season 3 well, I, think, I don't know. If... I, I think you're exactly right, and that's definitely one of my like leading capital R reasons. But <laughs> it's interesting on the same hand too, because oh my god, how much strife has it caused me? Like yes, you know all 
I, I love espousing, you know, throwing yourself recklessly into the mm-hmm. like, chaos and new experience. But oh my God, this last year has been brutal on me. Like, yes. Even in, like, in the last calendar year, basically since I started recording this, some of the most like heinous, you know, violent, heinous things that have happened in my life. Um, I, I emotional mean, like, hardship. And, you know, I mean, like a first month into the show uh, or yeah. the season, into the season. Like, literally yeah, the, the Gundam yeah, the ca- episode, the Gundam episode, the cat. Uh, oh yeah, when I got the um, Catholic scorched. summer fire. Yeah, the Catholic summer fire. Yeah, the, I like something really terrible and violent happened to me, and I was extremely unhinged uh, during the Gundam episode. Uh, and then yes. that was right around um, the month in which this little internet community that has been um, the sort of vortex world that we have been. <sighs> like storming through. I mean, it was kind of set up for me by, you know, people like Jack and Red Scare and the people who have associated with like these art movements uh, in America. Like that groundwork was laid and I kind of like used it as like um my own vortex world where I could like look for reason. And then to have all of that explode in my face and get like raked across coals by anonymous people on the internet for months months i mean yeah (laughs) even literally just this past week yeah i mean it happens to me every week at this point and it's like okay like what you know what happened to me a few weeks ago like you know uh breakups here and there emotional hardship and you know a lot of that is you know to take responsibility for it is because of my like flagrant um recklessness and my inability to be civil and polite like i I feel like as much as I espouse my philosophy about that, it also, like, leads to a lot of disaster. Yeah, I understand that. I mean, when you put... When you are simply... I mean, being a podcaster in of itself is putting yourself out there in a way that 95% of people will not understand. Mm-hmm. They will not understand what it's like to put your own self, your own values, your own beliefs, your own, you know, your own trials, your own hardships out there to the world to be ingested as like a weekly product. As content is like a literal yeah. product. Yeah, it, it I don't nothing. I didn't understand it until I started doing it, too. I mean, granted, I'm I am not on. I don't do necessarily what you do per se, but like to know that like my thoughts are being broadcasted to hundreds of people weekly. And it feels like, you know, the spectral rape of the mind is happening. Like, even though it shouldn't be like, you know, I, you know, believing in oneself and sort of purpose should be like, okay, like what will one person do? But it's like, when just these like little little harpies are just swarming you the slimes and, yeah yeah the the smt slimes are just like ready to pounce thinking that they have the one up on you and i get it like putting yourself out there to you know going forth and doing all that brings the hardships of life in extreme fa- manners that are extremely depressing and harsh and scary to face but if i will point bring up a little just point i think your sort of determination has allowed for some of the biggest moments of the entire series by far i mean without this sort of thought process 
we wouldn't have an episode with Sharon Needles as a guest. We wouldn't have <laughs> Anna, you know, Kachikin on an episode. You wouldn't be able to do a trilogy based off, you know, the Holocaust or, you know, as something recently, you wouldn't have been able to convince people to get into Kea Kazaka 46 or Amaro Namie. Like, I can't believe that people bought copies of the American people. That is the most yes. crazy thing to me. The fact that like I know three people now who at least have purchased the book. I mean, that's wild. And it's, you know, I guess I can say with confidence that it's worth it to do this. Like, I know yes. that mm-hmm. the, I, I'm right in doing it. But, yeah, like, putting yourself out there like that and turning my soul and my earnest, unedited thoughts into, uh, I won't say art, because I'm sure, you know, someone's going to, you know, have a bitch fit about that. But to turn it into yeah. something that exists every week... Um, yeah, it does induce torture. I think about um, there are now like five human beings at the very least who obsessively monitor every single thing I do, listen to every mm-hmm. episode, um, looked on my tagged stories on Instagram, screen record them, um, zoom in on photos of my face to ridicule me. It's mm-hmm. like... I mean, those are the demons and the slimes that you have to deal with. But at the same time, it's like, I know I'm also like culpable in it. And if I didn't want it, then all I would have to do is stop and like delete my account. So it's like, you know, the price of my philosophy is that I do end up getting hurt a lot. And uh, mm-hmm. I invite a lot of scorn. Yeah, I mean... Yeah, and it's it, not it, even as bad for me as it is for you know Jack or God Anna and Dasha as well. I mean, yeah. there are people who get way more hate than I do. Um, and, but it's not uh, to it's not to belittle the things that have happened to you in this past year. I mean, I have the privy because you know we you and I pretty much talk every day to each mm-hmm. other, and so you tell me what happens to you, you know, both good and bad, and I'm just like wondering like what has zach done to in 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 get this wrath put upon him because what you're saying is not like in my mind it's not inflammatory it's not like zach is inciting the most you know inciting something awful to the world no zach speaking from what i view is like something deep within that i think a lot of people can resonate with so it's like when i see when i was there so you know there in quotation marks when mm-hmm. like the catholic fi- summer of fire where the entire month of june coincidentally during pride month like mm. you know it's like wow it's like dramatic irony in that sense but seeing the sort of responses and types of people who were just lambasting you i'm just like these are the types of people who are like the the and they, they remind me of Isamu in that sense, where they're so trapped within their own world that they would retreat to their own bubble. But when someone like you who is, you know, marching forth, putting yourself out there, putting your own sense of taste, your own personhood out to the world, I think, you know, you see someone, you know, like all those trad cats who came out of the woods, literally and were like barking up a storm it's just like well you're you're 
these types of people are just so weak-willed, weak, weak-minded, yeah. and so just like they're like the witches of like a roll doll book, where it's just like evil in spirit and evil in appearance. And it's, it's like, just unbelievable too, because I mean, even if you remove like the public reception that is published online, um, you encounter these kinds of people everywhere in daily life. Any, I feel like the majority of people are like these like screaming, like fleeing, twitching mannequins who are like can do nothing but like harp at you. And it's like if you want to commit to anything in your life, if you want to make art or like do a podcast or like do something or like, go to a party, there's always going to be like a legion of actual people around you who are going to like try to stop you. Um, yeah. It, the world is like full of these SMT demons and it's like when I really like get affected by that, it does make me like resonate with a Chiaki, like, sorry, only the powerful, the rest of you are like slaves forever, like mindset. And mm-hmm. I feel like there's been points in the season where I've gotten like both further like away from that and, and closer towards it in, in different parts and um, I having you know done forty five episodes of the season now. I'm like still like not sure how mm-hmm. much I agree with like Nietzschean will to power because mm-hmm. it does like create that droning, um, lifeless sort of um, self parody and monotony. You know, it, yeah, it becomes it, just as bad. It, it very. It's like when you were talking with Jack on the the Mein Kampf episode, mm-hmm. where you, when when you see a man like Hitler present all of his ideas and philosophies in that sort of will to power type way, but all you get is the sort of neurotic baby screamings into the like ether, and what does that do for us? on the grand scheme of things like and it's like that's why like the utopia episode was like really important for me as well because like it's the same even if you're not suggesting genocide even if you are just like trying to reform the world in some way like through this like fantastical utopian thinking like it always inevitably leads to uh destruction yeah, it leads to destruction. And so here we are in my show where my explicit mission for the last season has been to do precisely that and like make a utopian like new like world. I made yeah. that pact and it's hard to like look at everything I've talked about and figure out like do I even want to do that? Like what would I even make from it from what I've talked about? Yeah. I mean that it's hard to go back and be like, well, what are the things... Because everyone at the end of every episode had something different to say Mm -hmm. about what is to go forward in life, what needs to happen to create, you know, the world in the ideal sense. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that was the beauty of the Utopias episode is kind of like putting a mirror to that concept. I mean... SMT, if we're to go a little bit back, like SMT has never, I feel like, presented the reasons as like perfect utopian solutions. Right. Like it's always been a very sort of band aid solution, I think. Like 
she like a Chiaki's solution. Who's to say that the world won't? I mean, literally, the world will reborn, rebirth itself eventually. Or who's to say someone, what sort of person would come to power, being the strongest willed, strongest physically, strongest mm-hmm. mentally? Like, what's to say will come of that? Or if it's like a Hikawa, it's like, well, sure, we're all now one harmonious things. Like, but well, now what will happen? Now what? Or the progression of society and humanity as a broader stroke. But I always kind of go back to the individual thing. It, it makes me wish that like the freedom ending kind of panned out mm-hmm. in Nocturne and for life in general. But like then you get into the whole it's like, well, freedom. Freedom itself is a lofty and beautiful thing we want, but it's not exactly a planted in the ground reason. Yeah, and, well, freedom is also torture. It's like, yes. it's well, yeah, so you, it's difficult as, not to be in bondage. Like, it's so as this, it's like freedom is terrifying and never ending. Uh, yeah, like in my life right now, I can do whatever I want. I can like fuck it up at any like moment. I can like fail uh, easily. You know, I have a lot of anxiety about like work and like my performance there and like my future in this country and like what am I gonna do? Like freedom is is beautiful but it is um truly like it inspires death (laughs) (laughs) it's so scary sometimes i think like i i as a human am allowed to have whatever i want in per se Mm -hmm. like i could go out to the bars and find a guy and go sleep with him for the night and i could do that over and over and over and over again it's you know in a freedom society I could do that, but what mm-hmm. are the consequences of being that type of person or living that sort of sort of freedom, virtuous freedom, freedom, freedom life? Mm-hmm. Like what? You well, know, I feel like the HIV/AIDS episode almost kind of like alluded to that. Is like in a perfect again. I feel like the Utopias episode is almost like the episode of the season because. Mm-hmm it makes you wonder it makes you question the whole premise of it it's like well because i think you mentioned this like in season two or one i can't remember or you might even mention it on like another ep- on one of your guest appearances but it's like you know to go on like that idea i was going off it's like you know you want to live in the utopia society of like men can love you know love their man in a perfect society but then it's like you get punished with the sort of looming threat of hiv like mm-hmm. just kind of like omnipresently staring above you and then like in the larry kramer book it's like sitting within the soil of the country yeah like it it's like trying to piece this all together is like so difficult because i feel like every episode has like touched upon the right path forward it's like Right, it's like dissecting something. It's like we gotta pick that out. We gotta pick that out. Yeah. Like, and I mean, I feel like though I I I feel like I'm so stuck in the mud with this. Is but like because you told me this not too long ago, uh, in one of our just private messages, it was like it's better to not. It's better to go out there and to not second guess yourself because. Mm. Who's to say what would have happened if you didn't do anything? If you just sat mm-hmm. there and wondered, well, if I, what if I didn't do that? Or what if I didn't say this to this person? Or 
it might be terrifying to say like well think of all the bad things that could happen but right isn't life full of beauty and terror in the mm -hmm. same same vein like i could let's say like hypothetical like just in a simple sense like i have a car i can go anywhere i want but i also could die in the car yeah. like i feel hopefully that makes sense it's like freedom in of itself doing as you see fit like going forth to the world will bring sort of that looming question but like think of all the potential that w doing getting out there has yielded to not only just in a sort of bite-sized day-by-day thing mm -hmm. but like I, I i'm speaking from someone who's seen you go from the start when the show was just you talking with your friends mm -hmm. uh in japan and also back from college to know that when the the first episode of the entire series was you talking with Miku Divine, <laughs> and at some point you're going to be talking to arguably the biggest sort of force in the scene, you know, forces in the scene like Jack and Anna and Dasha. Like that's kind of like if you had just kind of stuck to the laurels of the Isamu bubble and mm -hmm. said like I'm talking to the people that I know in my scene in like the J-pop hag like Twitter circles. <laughs> <laughs> like all that all that stuff like imagine i don't think the beauty of isp wouldn't have realized its full potential if you your sort of pure individualism and willingness to put yourself out there i don't think any of that would have happened like well, i think it's, it's certainly was, part of that is due to my lust for fame like well, without yeah, a doubt because you know i'm a bad person and i want to be famous like, i don't care i'm not going to like pretend i don't want to be yeah like I want my name to mean something in history one day. And, you know, mm -hmm. I feel like even the little bit I've accomplished with my show and like having made at least a little bit of an impact on a few people's lives is it's a feeling I really love. And because I'm a crazy Hannah Horvath narcissist, like I want to inflict my feelings on everyone. And it's like this notion of freedom is really interesting. Um, and what kind of like curses um, it is also mm -hmm. lays on those who suffer from it and i feel like being uh tortured for fame is something that i do take like uh i i take it seriously but it's like i don't there's there's something worthwhile about being tortured like yeah. um how many times on the season have I talked about the torture of like little Japanese girls like maybe yeah. like seven <laughs> times it's like i obviously feel girls. Little Japanese girls? Like, I feel like... <laughs> idols? Do you like idols, Zach? Like, between, like, Amuro and Perfume and Kohara Tomomi and, and Amuro Nomie and Utada, like, all of these people I've talked about have been, like, deeply tortured by the public, um, their own personal circumstances, and um, selling but their souls to, like, Lucifer in order to turn that into, like, a fame that inspires, like, ecstasy in me when I listen to their music, and I think that's worthwhile, like, um, reveling a little bit in that pain and crisis. Yeah, and even season three, like, it's not even just, like, the idols you've covered. I mean, you've talked about, like, how Kim K mm. and her sort of celebrity and all that. You, you haven't, like, a lot of I feel like some of these episodes have like covered that notion of like being tortured for something 
Like, mm-hmm. it, whether it be just fame or it could be even more than that. I mean, I feel like every there's been a lot of episodes. I mean, like maybe maybe like uh, like the Drag Race episode, you, like talked mm-hmm. about like the torture oh, yeah, of Laganja. Like, I mean, that's a fame <laughs> example, but like someone like Laganja who wanted to be famous. Mm-hmm. And was literally tortured through the most torturous of reality TV show competitions mm-hmm. ever. And it's like you see the sort of like just literal demons that were manifesting within Laganja's real life. And, <sighs> you know, the ramifications it had for Laganja posts now. But like, you know, I love Laganja. I love her. Like I love her like post drag race sort of like Yeah, her like Drew Barrymore like blissed out like like weepy <laughs> transgenderism. Yeah, yeah and, it's it's sparkling. Yeah, I feel like what I'm trying to get at is I feel like there's been a lot of sort of examinations of like celebrity figures or movie fixtures or TV mm. shows or novels like someone sort of suffering from some sort of aspiration that they want to get to. And yeah, they, they suffer because they feel desire, and desire is inherently about lack. It's about not having what you think you want, and the emotional spectrum of experiencing that desire. I mean, when I think about um, the two French novels I talked about with John, um, which was Simple Pleasure and Story of O, like, that's all about being literally tortured for love, and it's like... Yeah, I do feel ripped apart by the world. I mean, you know it because we talk every day. And at mm-hmm. the slightest little, like, gesticulation in my heart, I, like, come screaming into the Discord about how I'm going to, like, bash my head in with um, a you're stick. Gonna pierce, you're going to pierce yourself on Tokyo Tower. Yeah, I'm going to pierce myself on Tokyo Tower. I'm going to, like, I'm going to gnaw off my arm with my canines. Like, <laughs> this happens to me, like, the second I, like, get a crush on someone. And it's, like... Once again, the balance is that if you go too deep into that, you become manic and unwieldy, but also, like, participating in, like, at least a little bit of respect for that um, deep emotionality is is something that really drives me, and I I think, hopefully, that came out on the show at least a few times this season. I I think so. I mean, you could look at the the episode you did with Monica, like talking about Marlon Brando Mm -hmm. as a whole. Like that, he is an he is a man driven by his desires, not just in like the pursuit of his acting aspirations, but like him as a person, like Mm -hmm. his desires that he indulged in. And I think you got on this also with like episode like i even think like the gundam episode kind of mm-hmm. reflects that a little bit too like every i think season three is like a reflection of just desires like what what is what is it to be human like we all have desires that fuel our choices in life like I want to go to the gay bar and I want to go home with that person. So I'm going to be, you know, desiring that guy. So what am I going to do to get his attention? Mm -hmm. Like, or like I have a desire to, you know, I don't know, like be skinty, licious honey boots. And it's like, well, I want to indulge in my desires of like food. Or if I want to be like, indulge in my sort of, creative aspirations like what do you you know how are you going to get that accomplished like right i 
season three, I think, is it's like a examination of both your your personal desires, but also like in reflect in examining it through like pieces of art that you connect to the most. And you know, you've mentioned it's like the talking about like high art, like sort of more what we would uh, probably associate with the notion of art, but then you can talk about something that's considered like lower art, you know. I mean, the Drag Race episode, I think, is like a perfect example of that, where it's like Drag Race is the trashiest trash that will ever trash in like... And yet but... it ends up being the high art of that episode in comparison yeah. to like the art film we talked about. Now, you think that elevation is important to me and maybe like somewhat key in figuring this out, especially in considering like desire, is that like um, you have to take the absurd and kind of elevate it to mm-hmm. something weighty and meaningful And Mm -hmm. if you can't do that, then um, the world becomes extremely dry, um, and it would be kind of become like Hikawa's uh, reason. And in that sense, like if you have all of your desires constantly met, if you are looking only for like climactic emotional experiences, or if you can't look at the mundane and try to make that sublime in at least some passing way, then you're going to end up in the the soup. Well. Yeah, and you've and you've covered like sort of topics that to most people would be mundane. Like there's the one with Ronald recently where you talk about yeah, the, the Instagram, Instagram. Mm-hmm. and you know, and heck, you did it in season two with Logo about that one video clip. Like, yeah, transcending the mundane, I think it helps put a sense of living, at least to me as a listener, trying you know. I am a fan of what you do, and it's like <laughs> I don't mean to uh, masturbate myself either with no, this. It's really no, funny, but this is it's it's interesting to talk about it as I'm like looking at my mic and you at the same time as we're like <laughs> making the episode as it's happening. It's really um, it's it's giving me a, a brain slip. Well, I mean, I think it's always kind of surreal to like analyze yourself, like analyze your mm. creations, but then because you put your whole self into I'm so popular and sirens. Like there's no doubt that like what I, what people listen to is 100% you, you know, Mm. you know, forgive me, but like Lagan just said, I'm being 100% J like being 100% J when I say things like it's something, it's like (laughs) that. Like, I feel like when you, no, but I'm really glad you keep bringing up Laganja because she's absolutely like, She's like one of yeah. She's like a a conical designed character that's like leading me through this. She's like Lucifer. Yeah. (laughs) Laganja's army. Laganja's army. The council. The assembly of Laganja Estranja. Yeah, led but with Gia Gun. Who else would be on the assembly of? of, That's it. No more. Done. Um, (laughs) Okay. No more transgenders. Okay, that's something for the new world. Sorry, no more. <laughs> okay, I was thinking about this over the week. I was, like, trying to figure out, like, okay, if I literally was doing this right now, what would I do? I was, like, I just want to turn the entire universe into a steaming sex pile um, where everyone's limbs are interjoined and everyone is just huge genitals, and that's it. That was something I thought about, um, but obviously that betrays the mission of my show, so I can't do that. Do you have any <laughs> ideas, Sam? <laughs> like, do, you, <sighs> do you have any ideas of what, what should the world look like now? 
This is a tough one. This is the toughest it's, question. I this think is the you. hardest question. Oh, and you asked the you asked the gamer to do this. Oh boy. <laughs> um, I don't. I mean, we've known each other for two years at this mm -hmm. point, and we've covered pretty varied topics. All, but it's all said and done between your mm -hmm. show and my show. And I'm trying to like put it all together. But like for me, what I've learned the most from you is it's better like to, I don't know if it's even really necessarily a world that is being created or a reason, but it's just like for me, what I have learned from season three. I feel like season three is what helped me create the third place. It's like, mm -hmm. if I were to just sort of like sit in my corner and like dwell upon the thoughts that I had in my head, my, you know, the, all the rocks in my brain, it's like, what would I be doing to myself? I'm just going to keep stewing upon this and stewing upon this. And it's mm -hmm. like, I'm not, I'm not doing anything like per se. Right. I might be, I might be doing something in other things, but I'm not fulfilling what I think I could get the most out of life. Like, well, I understand that too, because another word I thought about, I was like, I'm just going to make myself famous. I'm just going to be the most famous, like Japanese idol of all time. And everyone's going to love me. And that's what the world is going to be like. But then I was like, I realized if I just uh, granted myself that instead of like went out there and in the words of Kim Kardashian, got off my ass and fucking worked. And work. Yeah, so. if I didn't, if I don't fucking work, then it's never going to feel satisfying or like I'm actually expressing myself or, or doing anything meaningful. So that can't work either. But you know, you're right that that's something that I, I thought about a lot. It, it's so trying to create a world of ideals. I think well, it's always going to have like the frauds and the issues. Well, what have we learned <sighs> if not that? ideals and politics are retarded and yes, don't work I, I, and make I, everyone miserable yeah i think that's the main thing i think you and i have learned this past year is oh that... god have i ever like i have seen not one joyful thing brought about by like endless philosophizing on the state of things which is funny because i'm you know doing that as well but it's like <laughs> what misery has been incurred by all of this motherfucking like morality policing and establishment of rules and suggestions on how we should do things better it's not right mm -hmm. so whatever the new world is it cannot be one that is governed by Ninnies. fucking <laughs> fucking politics and ideals and philosophy and rules yeah i think that's that's 100%. a given yeah, I mean, that's the one pillar that we can nail down. That one's easy, and it can't but, be a sex pit, and it can't just be a celebrity. Yeah, my God. I'm trying to... The, the, I keep feeling like I'm, I'm like a broken record at this point, but it's just like... Uh, abandoning... I think abandoning the sort of safety net of the group is obviously thing... Like, that was another thing I wanted to get at. It's, like, abandoning the concept that we all have to, like, uh, what's the word? Uh, collectivize. Conform and, and collectivize, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's well, one thing. In the words pill. of Keikisaka 46, uh, you have the freedom to live as you like. You mm -hmm. can say no. Yeah. Silent majority. <laughs> uh, again, we're pulling 
Kazaka 46, another like crucial episode and crucial topic point, I think, for the entire season. God, this you know is what? Harsh. I actually have been kind of pulling your leg because I wanted to hear what you think, but I have already uh, you've long already done decided. It? I already oh, yeah. know exactly oh. what I want to do. Oh, the gag. The gag <laughs> the, of it all. The plot twist. Oh. I am not changing anything. I'm oh leaving it all exactly the same. Oh I, my. Oh my God. I'm just going back to how it was. The Went world the is beautiful. The <laughs> dog show. <laughs> I can't be fucking bothered. I'm not going to waste any more of my life thinking about how to make things better. Because mm-hmm. I love this little world we're in every single day, no matter what sort of arduous tragedy I have from violence or work or some emotional hardship, I like get to like look out at like the preconception Tokyo and like look at these beautiful skyscrapers um, filled with people who all have their own unique individual lives. And that is so ecstatic. And I love feeling heartache there. I love having extreme emotional experiences and meeting new people and finding new things every day. And I can't do that in some fake imagined new world that I'm going to create. It's not correct. The only thing that there is, is to just live what we have now. I'm taking the freedom ending. Oh my god. Yeah. Oh my you really pulled the rug out from under me. I'm taking the like, fucking freedom ending. <laughs> oh my god, Yuko would be so proud. She's like, and you know, of course you could change things and make you know, try to make people more like understanding or make people more passionate or encourage people to get but, but I need the mannequins. I need the NPCs around to make me look like more of a star. So I'm not changing them either. I'm not even the horrible, wretched people who have raked me over broken glass for merely being a gay person on the internet, they can stay too, because, like I said, I have to be tortured by everything, and th- that's what there is. This is the world in front of us, that's what we have, and that's all I want, and that's all anyone should ever want. I think you're 100% true. I'm or 100% right. I mean... What is life without the, the haters and the losers? They they were born fucked up. What can we do? I'm not going to help them. I'm not going to try to teach them about this. From now on, the only thing I have any interest in whatsoever is having fun new experiences and learning more about what's in front of me and finding new joys and tragedies and turning all of it into whatever I possibly can while I still get to be alive on this earth. I'm <laughs> 